Hello and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and I've been lucky enough to play some chamber music this week. Yes, okay, if you're a musician who makes their living playing chamber music, then good for you. And frankly, mad respect, can I just say what a mission it is to get six freelance musicians together, not only to perform in three concerts, which we've had in the diary for over a year now, but together for rehearsals so that the concerts are of a standard where they're deemed an overall success, rather than just a giant collective faceplant. As freelancers, we all have busy schedules, with one member coming specially from Finland to play with us. We'd rehearse, and then there was always the mad dash later. Oh, I've got to go teach. Oh, I've got to do a session now. Or, see you guys tomorrow. I'm driving to Sussex. Then there are the unexpected occurrences. There was one Mozart viola part which disappeared mysteriously between the penultimate and final concert. Various trains got delayed en route to another concert. I realised that of the two music stands I keep in my car, both of them are broken. I even forgot my concert shoes for one of the concerts and after contemplating performing either barefoot or with bright white Adidas trainers, I sent Mark across the road to a giant Tesco where he purchased a pair of black flats for twelve fifty, And they're amazing shoes. They're so comfortable. Well done. After all that, when you sit down on stage, it's almost like playing music is the easy bit. This is what we're trained to do. This is why we do it. The running around like headless chickens trying to earn a living despite transport issues and lack of shoes so that we can sit down with our mates and play some awesome music together. If you want a piece to listen to this week, listen to the Brahms G Major String Sextet. It's so good. It's gloriously expensive. Listen to it on your commute. But after you've finished this episode, obviously. My guest today is Margaret Cookhorn. She's the principal contrabassoonist of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, as well as a regular contributor for BBC Radio 3. I caught up with her while I was in Birmingham during the Star Wars tour, and we had a chat about life as a bassoonist, including how practice is like saving to buy a house, outsourcing your reed-making to your other half, and what it's like to be the first soloist of your instrument's kind at the BBC Proms. We had a chat over much-needed oat flat whites in the CBSO Centre. Have a listen to my conversation with Margaret. Margaret Cookhorn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to have a chat. Oh, well, it's a great pleasure to see you again. We are currently in a room quite hilariously called the quiet room, even though it's next to a very busy road, here in the CBSO headquarters. Yes, CBSO centre, yes. Yeah, so we are in Birmingham. Yes, we are, yes. I had a show here last night. So do you want to start by just telling us what you've been up to recently? You've mentioned to me that you've had a very busy summer. Yes, yes, very, very busy summer. The orchestra has been really busy with our music director, Mirga. We did the proms, then we went on tour to Austria and Germany. We're now doing projects with British music, Mm -hmm. so... uh, Benjamin Britten, Michael Tippett, William Walton, Elgar, um, which we're about to take on tour to Germany. And we're recording as well. So we're, it's really interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. How do you find um, playing all British music? Um, a lot of us were daunted. I was a little bit daunted at first, but actually it's been all right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find it interesting taking a, an all British program uh, across to Germany. Under, oh, in under Germany, they'll love it. But that under certain political circumstances. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, putting that to one side. <laughs> I, many years ago, we took Elgar Drimadurantius to Berlin mm-hmm. and they loved it. Wow. Absolutely loved it. So I think they'll really enjoy it. I, I mean, William Walton's very rhythmic, very exciting yeah, music. Yeah. What are you um, playing by William Walton? We're doing a suite from his opera, 
Troilus and Cressida. Okay, I don't know that. <laughs> no, I don't know the opera, no, but I mean, yeah. just doing the music, it's that's quite interesting. It's yeah. Just, yeah, it's interesting stuff. Yeah, so. I think as you say, Walton is, can be really exciting, yeah. really, really rhythmic. His first symphony, yeah. you know, and very loud. <laughs> and the cello concerto. Oh, heard? of course, yeah. yeah, that's a good piece. And the viola concerto. Oh, yes. That's a good piece as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't say I've spent much time listening to that, but oh, I've right. heard a lot of my viola friends talking about it for yeah. auditions. <laughs> Also, the violin is did they do a vi- yes the violin concerto that's a good one as well yeah. Walton violin concerto yeah oh. I sort of associate Walton with his really rousing you know patriotic kind of anthems you know like the Crown Imperial yes yes is it Crown Imperial yes yeah yes. and yes. Spitfire yes Belshazzar's Feast and that kind of oh, thing oh yeah that is a great piece yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what sort of things do you have to look forward to when you get back so after the tour what am I doing a bit of teaching and. Uh, Yes, more exciting things. We yeah. have a recital series here, which is run by the players, and the concerts are held at lunchtime in the CBSO Centre. So as players, we all get together in groups because it has to be an ensemble of some sort. So how do you find it slotting into chamber music after playing lots of big orchestral? Oh, I, I really like it. I mean, you have to kind of force yourself because we're so busy. Mm. And it's good for ones playing to do chamber music. A couple of years ago, I did a piece for Contrabassoon and String Quartet wow. by Willy Hess. And um, it was a case of slotting into a concert with the String Quartet. Mm. And I said, can I tag along? It's quite a light-hearted, easy piece. Well, not not easy, but light-hearted for the listener to yeah. listen to, um, which I did as part of the Centre Stage series. So. I imagine that would pose lots of interesting new challenges in terms of playing from a string player's point of view. Oh, You're thinking so much about blending with other string players. And yes. When you get something like a contrabassoon thrown into the mix, <laughs> it's, it's a whole new sort of ball game, isn't it? Oh, well, I leave all the... Up- bows and down bows to them you see I'm too busy <laughs> having a great time you know playing and no they're quite easy going about it actually okay and, and it's just something new for them because obviously with the contra being so low and for I'm just thinking of the audience they've got to obviously zone into what I'm doing so the, the strings are really good at getting out of the way when oh. they need to be so uh, okay. and actually it's quite well written because I find pieces with contra if there are too many high notes then the ear will immediately go to all the high notes and, yeah. and it will sound like sludge otherwise. So, so we can say that it's the type of piece where the contra takes the centre stage. And oh, yeah. Oh, OK. Well, oh, yeah. well, of course you'd say that, <laughs> wouldn't you? <laughs> You're not there to accompany the string players. <laughs> so speaking of the contrabassoon, mm-hmm. you are the principal contrabassoon in the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And you got this job when you were still studying yes, um, as a postgrad. That's right. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you got this job at such a formative time? Of your oh, life? what happened? I was um, just coming to the end of my uh, my fourth year, and in millions of years ago, <laughs> when I was a student, jobs were advertised in the Daily Telegraph on a Saturday. Oh, well, all, so all jobs. All jobs yeah. in the UK. You didn't see jobs from abroad. There would just be jobs in the UK, and they would be in the Daily Telegraph on a Saturday. So you'd, I, in my case, I was too poor to buy the Daily Telegraph. So I'd go to the library and look at the Daily Telegraph. Right. And um, each week you'd see the jobs. And of course, as time went on, and because of more online mm. uh, websites advertising, obviously the Daily Telegraph have stopped doing that. Yeah, and you have websites like Musical Chairs That's now, right. which encompass so the whole world. Uh, yeah. yeah, they've stopped doing that. I applied and came for my audition in Birmingham. I didn't have a contra. I just had a bassoon. I was using the college's instrument. And um, I was the first to audition. So I played. And then they said, oh, you've got a trial. And I went, oh, thank you very much. And it just so happened my very first project was with Simon Rattle. (laughs) And um, what did I do in my trial? Oh, yes, it was Shostakovich, I think. I can't remember. I was on trial like in the November, and then I got the job the following March, and, and I was a postgraduate student, so I stopped being a student immediately. I still didn't have an instrument, so the college loaned me theirs for about a month. Then I had a week when I didn't have an instrument, so I used yeah. an amateur player's contra for a week. <laughs> and then um, another orchestra, they had an orchestral instrument, so I used theirs until mine was ready, mm-hmm. about nearly a year later. I remember another conversation we had mm-hmm. months ago, how difficult it can be coming across bassoons and, and contras, and how you have to sort of order 10 years in advance if you want to get a, get one specially made for you. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit 
more about that, the speciality of bassoon making? I think in the bassoon world, I mean, the name Heckel, um, Wilhelm Heckel, there they are, the oldest bassoon makers in the world. In fact, if you go to their factory and look at their guest book, the first signature you see is Richard Strauss. Oh, um, casual. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you hear this name and obviously, you know, you think, gosh, I, I could never afford, when I was a student, I could never afford this instrument. And of course, when I joined CBSO, I had to buy a Contra. Yeah. That's the first thing I had to do. So I bought a Contra and then I thought, right, I need to buy a new bassoon because I had a student model bassoon. That's all I could afford. And uh, my section leader bassoon at the time said, Save up, buy the best instrument you can afford. You're young to do it. This is now the time to do it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay. So I saved and saved and saved, ordered and waited four years, and got my first heckle pursued. Mm. And it was like all Christmases come to one. It yeah. was wonderful. They make it for me. I chose all the key work. Yeah. It was just wonderful. It's an instrument I still have. And then when I bought that, um, I bought a house. <laughs> and then... A few years later, a colleague said to me, well, if anything should happen to your contra, you'd be stuck. And I'm thinking, well, yes, I would, because repairers are thin on the ground. Right. So I bought another contra. This is why you had to buy a house to fit all your new (laughs) instruments. (laughs) And then I thought, right, that's it. No more instruments. And then about eight years ago, a colleague of mine who now has retired, she lives in America now, she said, you know what? You should buy another bassoon. I went, why? I don't need another bassoon. And she said, well, it's a good investment with a heckle. So um, I thought, oh, all right then. So I ordered another bassoon and it should have been five years wait, but I had it nearly seven years later. I got it. And in the meantime, you're just playing your other My other heckle, yeah, my yeah. other bassoon. But I believe now the waiting time is, I rumour has it, it's, it's 10 years plus wow. now, if you order one tomorrow. Why is it that uh, it takes so long? The last time I was at Heckle, I spoke to them and they said they wanted to keep the quality and that if they employed more people, then the quality they feel would diminish and they wanted mm-hmm. to keep that, that quality and that speed you know, that yeah. exclusivity. Exactly. So it would be like just that exclusive few people that know all the trade secrets. Yes, that's yeah. it, that kind of thing. So, and I mean, I mean, the instrument is made for me and if I didn't like it, I could sell it because the, the waiting list is so long, people would just jump in and buy it. But no, I just love all my instruments. I am definitely not buying any more. So how many do you currently have? I've got two Contras and two bassoons. <laughs> That's it. I'm not buying any more. <laughs> do you hear that heckle? <laughs> You've lost I told the them. <laughs> I told them. And they were, what? 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 I said, no, no, I'm not buying any more. <laughs> two of each is enough. And with two Contras, it's great because it means... One is at work and one is at home, so I'm not having to oh, carry yeah. it around. Because in its case, it weighs about 22 kilos. Mm. It's quite heavy. It is quite a nice luxury when you get other people to carry your instruments for you. It is. Yeah. It I can attest to that. <laughs> uh, my, cello, my cello is nowhere to be seen in this room because it's currently on a truck between Birmingham and Liverpool. It's quite nice. Um, very freeing. Yeah, it's a really interesting insight on bassoons, obviously, as a string player. I don't know about any of this kind of stuff. And just the sort of trials and tribulations that other instrumentalists mm-hmm. have how do you go about reeds are bassoonists as obsessed with reeds as oboe players are uh, yep i think so <laughs> i think i think oboe players are more so because their reeds don't last as long they have more and they can get through them very very quickly because they are dealing with the top end of bamboo yeah so it's a, a bit more fragile yes a, yeah. i'm very lucky well I'll just go back a step, actually. The reason I got into reed making was as a student, I couldn't afford to buy reeds. Reeds, top quality reeds were so expensive, I couldn't afford. So that's what made me learn how to make them. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm so glad I learned to make them as a student. So do many bassoonists make their own reeds or do they I tend think, to buy? I think it's half and half, actually. Okay. I don't know how much bassoon reeds are. They're quite expensive. But recently... I have a husband who's now retired. He makes my reeds for me. That's very kind. Is he a a bassoonist? No, he's not. He's a former percussionist, but he's very good with his hands. He used to make his own tip sticks. So how does he know how to make reeds? Did you teach him? Oh, I taught him. So he actually physically makes them up and puts all the binding on. 
but he doesn't deal with the scraping or the finishing. I do that. Of course. And that just saves me a lot of time. Yeah. So he does the prep work. He's a yes. little bit like your sous chef. That's it. And then you're the head chef. He'll do that. And then <laughs> I'll just do the finishing. And so w- when he looks in the dustbin and goes, why is that reed in the bin? And I say, darling, it's beautiful. I know it's lovely, but it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, and of course, he doesn't really know the ins and outs. Yeah. You see, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, all reeds do work. It's what you do with them. Mm-hmm. So It's so personal, isn't it? Absolutely. I think oboe's more so, mm. even more personal yeah. than bassoon. I mean, if, if I needed to play my colleague's reed, in fact, I can't play my colleague's because his reads are so hard but I think being a first player your read setup is very different to say playing second bassoon sure yeah. um, and of course contra reads are mm. very different they're much bigger um, yeah I imagine a parallel would be perhaps uh, string players and, and the types of strings that they choose yes. to put on their instruments yes. you know you can have high tension you could have low tension you could have steel you can have gut or you could have something synthetic oh, right. there's so many different things yes. depending on what kind of a player yes. you are oh I didn't know about the tension but that's interesting yeah high oh, tension right. I'm I'm a low tension <laughs> string player <laughs> just because um it's quite nice to not have to press too hard with oh, your left right. hand. I didn't I never knew that oh. I just thought a string was a string was a string <laughs> Yes, so if I ever broke a string in your company, you'd probably just hand me some twine uh, or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's 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 very very telling, and they they all give off slightly different sounds. Mm. You know, I personally really like the sound of gut strings, but I hate the way that they don't stay in tune. So you're constantly retuning. High tension strings can be very piercing. So if you're into that sort of sound. Obviously, sitting in in the middle of a section of eight people, you probably don't want that. You want to <laughs> blend as much <laughs> as possible, but each to their own, oh. really. Oh, it's very interesting. Oh, I've learned something today. Now. Oh, great. I'll ask my cello colleagues, high tension or low tension, you see. <laughs> yes, and then ask them about what um, what their strings are made out of. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll do that. Then you'll be... Oh, interesting. You'll, yeah, you've got conversation fodder for <laughs> ages. <laughs> very geeky, though. Uh. <laughs> Brilliant. Can you tell me a little bit about what drew you to the bassoon and the contra when you were embarking on your musical path? Well, I took up the bassoon at senior school. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, s- what's senior school? What age? So that's 11 to 16. Okay. Yep. Um, that's when I, well, before then I, I did the piano. So I had private piano lessons. And then when I went to the senior school, the school had a new music wing built. And the local authority gave the school one flute, oboe, clarinet, bassoon, violin, viola, cello, double bass. And I actually wanted to learn the oboe, but somebody was learning that. So I thought, well, I think I'll learn the bassoon because the teacher had her eye on learning the bassoon. I'm thinking, hang on, that's for the students. So I ended up by learning the bassoon. And I thought, oh, I quite like this. Not not for any orchestral career. I just thought I quite like playing the bassoon. And when I got to 16 after... Oh, I'm giving my age away now. O levels, there was no GCSEs <laughs> then. I thought, well, I actually quite like. I'm going to carry on and carried on do music. And then, when I got to about 17, it was deciding whether I would do music mm. or something else. And I thought, actually, the idea of do music all day every day sounds great. Yeah. You know, I was going on music courses with the um, county youth orchestra and thing. I thought, this is brilliant. I love it. I like, I like the social interaction mm. and all the music making. Yeah. So um, I thought, right, I'll apply for music college. So I applied to music college and I got in everywhere. I didn't think I'd get in anywhere, but I got in everywhere. <laughs> and so a very good friend of mine who was in Manchester said, you know what? The best place for you would be Manchester. So I thought, that's a good idea, because my teacher was an oboist. He actually wasn't a specialist bassoon player. Do you Um, get a lot of that, like wind players teaching interchangeably different instruments? You find that, I think, even more. I mean, when I was learning, there was a a big lack of bassoon teachers. So it was the oboe teacher, and he said, you know, you need expert Mm. advice. So I knew that when I went to Manchester, I'd be kind of like starting again. But then I didn't mind that because it, I meant I was doing everything and I was doing music every day and I wasn't mm. writing essays. It was making you happy. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, this writing essays bits for music, I, I really didn't get, you know, this academia. I thought, no, oh, I don't want that. That's, so, it's funny um, you say that because now you write for the BBC, <laughs> <laughs> which we'll get to in a minute. People would, you know, I'd be around and people would say, do you want to play in this ensemble? Oh, yeah. Do you want to play in this? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. And of course, with the Royal Northern, there's also the University of Manchester. And so I'd be playing in the University of Manchester as well in their projects. And then towards the end of my first year, the contra was looming. I thought, oh, I want to have a go on that. I thought, right, I really like this. So 
they let me have lessons kind of like a term early. So I started having lessons mm -hmm. with my teacher then. So, yes, yeah, so I just carried on, you know, enjoying yeah. myself. And then I was starting to pick up some work in my third year, on contrary initially, and then bassoon. And then it wasn't until my fourth year that I started doing auditions. Well, I only, I've only done two. <laughs> oh, lucky. <laughs> lucky you. Um, and the second one was the CBSO one. So, yeah. uh, so the rest is history, really. Yeah, it, it, sounds, it sounds like, um, you know, that wonderful journey of saying yes whenever you can and opportunity sprouting Absolutely. from that. A parallel that comes to mind is, do you know the comedian Tina Fey? Yes. Yeah, so yes. If, if you read her yeah. autobiography, mm -hmm. Bossy Pants, and mm -hmm. she talks about improvisation because mm -hmm. she came from a comedy, improvisation, theatre background and how you, you can't get very far if you say no. Mm. in improvisation and I think it's, it's the same in music as well you sort of have to say yes to everything and then kind of work, work it out as you go along I, I agree because even my time as a student during my time as a student I met so many composers who are big names today mm -hmm. people like Colin Matthews for example you know up-and-coming composers at the time who are you know big names in the composer world I met as a student mm. um, and so and I, I'd play everything contempt and I mean I do contemporary music now but yes all those opportunity opera all those kinds of things no, I loved it it was just doing music and playing that's yeah. what I want oh yeah and you have to practice <laughs> But I mean, I, I didn't mind that, you know, I, I thought, well, to get somewhere, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to put the work in. Yeah. I remember that from my student days when, um, you know, you'd be sitting down in your practice room, but you're, you know, I think it changes when you s stop calling it practice and you start calling it exploring. Yes. You know, yes. and um, you're exploring your instrument. I think if... I noticed this in my own teaching, but if you tell a student practice, they probably won't do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you tell them explore, mm -hmm. then it's... I don't know. Maybe there's a bit more mystique to it. They feel like they can take things into their own hands. That's interesting. More. I think with my my students, I I think like scales. Going, oh, do I have to do scales? And I say, well, if you think of athletes, you know, they do a lot of training in the gym. So treat scales as like being in a musical gym. Yeah. You see, you have to get stronger. It won't kill you. It will make you stronger playing scales. And I say to my students, if you were to come backstage of Symphony Hall and hear us warm up. You know, a lot of us are playing scales. Yeah. So, you know, it, yeah. it's there for a reason, yeah. you know, so. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's sort of changing the way you frame something. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think I use the analogy of sport a lot. Yeah. Even mm -hmm. when I'm doing things for myself, rather than call it practicing, I may call it training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keeping in shape. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you notice if you've taken a few weeks off that you lose your chops? For me, no, because I think the longest I've had off is six weeks. Maybe for a day or so, mm -hmm. it feels weird. But after that, yeah. But I do things in place before the six weeks break. So if I have, it's not every year we have six weeks holiday, by the way. Yeah. Um, like next year, we've only got three weeks. But um, when we have our, our summer break, what I will do is to prepare reads before the break so that when I come back into playing I'm not having to do any scraping or anything like that so I can actually get back into playing a lot quicker and then a couple of months into work then I will deal with reads and, and things like that so mm. it, it's kind of like the preparation because we know in advance what repertoire is coming up yeah. so it's a case if we've got an awkward program you know getting reads ready for that and being you know prepared for that I suppose if you're, if you're an athlete and get ready for the Olympics you know you've got four years and you've got one shot yeah to you're, do it you you're not going to do it all the night before exactly <laughs> it's not yeah. a case of waking up and saying oh I've got to run the marathon today yeah. uh, what am I going to wear kind yeah. of yeah thing. yeah yeah <laughs> that's, that's a really really good analogy isn't it just you know that Olympic athlete analogy because I think a lot of students they, they want results straight away yes and it's hard for them to understand understand like yes. you say why do I do scales you know to yes. what end but it's like oh there is there is an end goal you just can't necessarily see it yet another way of, of seeing it is I mean if you're saving up for a house you would put money away every month or something so by practicing and keeping stronger you're actually putting in an investment mm. into your own playing so that the days when you leave college and you have no time to practice at least you can kind of like top up or keep things going yeah. because it's kind of like if you've invested in learning things properly 
then you can draw from that mm. as and when you need it, particularly if you're short of time. That's a really good analogy that I've never heard of before. Oh, really? Yeah, a house buying analogy. I'm currently ah. in the process of buying a flat at the moment. Okay. Um, yeah, so this has been <laughs> on my brain quite a lot. Uh. But um, <laughs> but I really, I really like that because then, you know, you have – it, buying houses is not something that people do every single day um, and then when it comes to it you have to have everything in reserve mm-hmm. don't you there's all those mm-hmm. unexpected costs Absolutely. that come up you have to make sure you have that in reserve so I suppose if you've got a very high pressure performance situation mm-hmm. you need to make sure that you've got all that background work is there under your belt yes. yeah oh yeah so that you don't have to think about reading a passage or it's just there under your fingertips mm-hmm. you know as a wind player anyway yeah so, have you had any moments like that where last minute call you've had to do something quite high pressure that you didn't expect? Not really. No, have I had to do? No, no, okay. no, not yet. You've had the <laughs> blessing of preparation. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. Part of me thinks, oh, I wish it did, but no. But then never. I never. You know. Who knows <laughs> what's going to happen <laughs> in the future? So. Yeah, yeah. You know. Because you have had some performances which were quite high pressure um you had a prom what year was that so i was soloist at the proms in 2015 okay. july 2015 a day i will never forget 19th <laughs> of july i loved it so much i want to do it again yeah and what did you play i played a piece written for me by the composer john woolrich called falling down <laughs> and it was conducted by andris nelsons and my colleagues from the cbso were fa- fabulous accompanists wow so backing you up <laughs> yes absolutely but I had performed the piece twice before mm-hmm. then um back in 2014 and in 2009 yeah as well and what, how does it feel walking out on stage you know the Royal Abbott Hall and it's it's a full house <laughs> and you know you are the soloist that's great it felt really good, actually. I think it's because I was given a year's notice. Okay. And when I heard from the BBC that this was scheduled in the programme, the first thing I thought of was, what was I going to wear? <laughs> Forget the music. The music's the easy bit. I was thinking, what am I going to wear? Who's going to do my hair, makeup? How many tickets do I need? So these are all the things that I wanted to sort out first because for me... Walking on the Albert Hall stage, I wanted to imagine walking on stage with my outfit. There's kind of like a lot of visualisation that's needed beforehand. And that's what I did. So my sister made my outfit for me. And um, I brought down my hairdresser and my makeup artist down to London. And I was able to book my tickets well before the public were able to get their tickets because it sold out immediately. Yeah. But uh, no, it was just a wonderful day. Did you feel scared at all? Not at all. It's really strange, actually. I think when you have a piece written for you, even before the first rehearsal, I knew what it sounded like and no one else did. So I I suppose if you're doing something like, you know, a well-known violin concerto or cello concerto, Mm. there is that pressure because people are out there to judge, say, no, they played a wrong note there or this or the interpretation. Whereas as it was a brand new piece and no one had ever heard it, particularly in London, as it was its London premiere, I was then able then to, this is me. Yeah. I'm just going to play it. And I had such a good time. I guess. Well, that's the thing with new music, isn't Mm. it? You can really afford to just make it your own. Yes. And some of those old war horse concertos, they have so much baggage attached to them, don't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. So it was quite nice being the first. And it was like the first contrabassoon concerto ever at the prom. So amazing. it was great. So the next person to play it will will look to your interpretation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they'll be the second person. It's in Wikipedia, actually, my concerto. Really? Yeah. If you look under contrabassoon, it actually mentions the name of the piece and me so I thought oh that's nice and did they record it for TV <laughs> I mean now a lot of programs are on BBC4 but at the time they put it on BBC iPlayer mm. and the BBC gave me a copy oh, so nice. I've got a copy of the concerto yeah. at home so speaking of the BBC uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> So both of us are embarking on a slightly new avenue in our careers. Yes, we are. So I, uh, I should probably mention I know you from the BBC Radio 3 Next Generation mm-hmm. Voices, for which we sort of had to send in a very short video talking about a piece that we mm-hmm. felt passionate about, yeah. and then we were selected 
for a media familiarisation day mm-hmm. at the BBC. And from that, off the back of that, we have had some additional work as time travellers for Essential That's Classics. That's right. What attracts you to radio and broadcasting? What made you go for the next generation voices in the first place? I think it was the experience I had with the BBC the year before when I had an email out of the blue from a production company saying, would you like to come and present a programme on Radio 3? Mm -hmm. And I went, yes, please, because it's my feeling. If someone's giving you this opportunity... I'm going to go for it. I think that's, 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 <laughs> that phrase sums you up. Yes, please. Just <laughs> say yes to everything. Work it out later. So and this was Inside Music, wasn't it? Yes. So where they yes. choose a prominent player in the music industry to, that's right. to put together a playlist mm-hmm. of pieces that inspire you mm-hmm. or pieces that you just really admire. Yes. Right? And also it's to um, give the listener an insight to what to listen out for. Mm. From a performance point yes, of view. Yes, performance yeah. or, you know, why have I chosen this piece and various things like that, which I found really interesting. And it's made me listen to music now in a different way, in, in the way of thinking, what would I talk to the audience about? What would I say to the listener about this mm. piece? What should they listen out for? Yeah. And I really enjoyed the experience. Mm. I recorded it in April of last year and it came out in May. You know what? I was actually in the car when that came out. It was before (laughs) I'd met you. And I I was driving, I can't remember, I was driving somewhere, but I just remember you talking about your personal take on the Masséon Tarongalila symphony and how you said, if you listen to the rhythm in this movement, it sounds like baking an egg for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. And that just stayed with me and I just thought, that's an interesting insight. But I think that's a testament to the personal take on a piece that really interests people, that people can engage with because otherwise if you're just spouting out facts and figures and it's easy to sort of lose interest. Yeah, and then I met you and I'm like, oh, you're the baking an eggs for breakfast lady. I heard that program. (laughs) So when the program came out in May, I had some lovely feedback from complete strangers saying how much they enjoyed it. (laughs) And the BBC repeated it in December of last year. So I didn't think anything of it when they repeated it. That was it. And then I saw the tweet about the Radio 3 New Generation Voices. And Mm -hmm. I thought, well, I enjoyed that radio experience. I'll apply. And I was free for the free day, for the familiarisation day. So I thought, well, I'll just apply and see what happens, you know. So uh, there we are. The rest is history. There you go. You, you, <laughs> said, you said yes, please, once again. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's, that's just how I find myself in surreal situations yeah. sometimes. And you just, you just give it a go. Yes. And then you find yourself, oh, now I'm on the radio. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so you are also a fellow time traveller writing about musical stories from the British Isles. Yes, my, my first one came out yesterday. Congratulations. Yay, thank you very much. Yeah. But I've enjoyed yours as well. Oh, cheers. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's been interesting um, finding all these funny stories yes. about um, yes. locations and people. I think one of the favourite ones I wrote about was Hubert Parry almost drowning two miles off the coast of Little Hampton. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> I need to listen to that one. From a performance point of view, mm-hmm. and you, you've already mentioned before, you didn't really like academia or writing essays. Mm-hmm. How do you find writing scripts? I really enjoyed it because English was not my strongest point at school. I have to say English language. I'd, I, I'd rather do music any day. Mm-hmm. But I found it really interesting because finding out about people's lives and writing for radio is very different to totally. writing for a book. So, And I quite like that because it's like talking to someone. Yeah. So that bit was the easy bit. Yeah. But I've enjoyed doing the research. And as you well know, you have to do quite a lot of research mm. and then bring it down to a few words. 250 words yes. and every word yes. counts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I know I've, I've enjoyed that part of it. And I'm always thinking, I wonder if there's any interesting stories out there. Because mm-hmm. obviously I've looked at stories, the one that came out yesterday is based in Birmingham. So, you know, I'm always looking for quirky things around where I live. So I'm still on the hunt. This is the thing. Every time I go, I'm traveling around the country and I see a blue plaque or something. Uh And then I just think, oh, maybe I could use that. But then I realized I'm not allowed to write about London anymore. Really? Yeah, they they don't want it to be too London-centric. Oh, right. So then then I find myself on Google Maps looking at Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or Wales, or looking at really, really remote places yeah. in the middle of nowhere, thinking, maybe there's an interesting story here. Yeah. And sometimes there is. 
That's good fun. So we got more time travellers to look forward to. Well, I have recorded some more, so let's see if they use them. Oh, I'm sure they will. You know, I yeah. hope they do. Yeah. I mean, one of them's quite a funny story, because I do like my scandals. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you share with us now? <laughs> well, there was just a scandal with a particular composer and a socialite in the 19th century. Well, yeah, I mean, who could that be? <laughs> Hell hath no fury, shall we say. Okay. One yeah, of those yeah. stories. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, everyone likes to get the yes. the goss on, on um, <laughs> famous composers. Yeah. <laughs> I mentioned to you mm-hmm. that there would be some surprise questions. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Great. So this is the wild card question round where you have the opportunity to choose from three topics what I ask you next. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have... Advice you wish you'd known, food, or what you're listening to? What I'm listening to. Okay, so what's currently on your Spotify playlist? And does this differ between work and holiday? What I listen to at home is very different to what I listen to at work. When I'm at home, it's pop music. <gasps> yeah. Ser- I mean, if it's hard, 70s, hard, 80s, hard, you know, I-, I listen to a lot of pop music. Is that Heart FM? Yes. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah, just for international listeners who oh, okay. don't know what that radio so, station is. Um, I love Motown. I love... I just, I just like my pop music. I think it's to give my ears a rest when I'm not at work. Mm. So when I'm at work, it depends what we're playing. I mean, if there are pieces that I absolutely love, like Janacek or Beethoven or Strauss, then, you know, I'm in heaven thinking, this is great, we should play it again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no. yeah. But uh, yeah, I have two kind of lives, kind of, you know, classical music life and then pop. My husband, interestingly enough, he loves jazz. Mm. But now that he's retired, he listens to a lot of Radio 3. And I believe a lot of my retired colleagues listen to more classical music, maybe because they're not surrounded by all the time. Mm, It's not work anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, they can just purely enjoy it. Whereas if you're playing it tomorrow, you you know, you're always micromanaging. Is that right? Was that together? The intonation. You're always thinking about all these different things at work. So would you find it quite difficult to listen to classical music? Just for pure enjoyment? I think when I was devising my playlist for this Inside Music that's coming out in December, I really, really enjoyed listening to music because I think I was getting the playlist when I was on holiday because everything, Mm. the time frame of getting everything ready was a lot shorter. So I had no choice but to listen to classical music on holiday, which is what I don't normally do. But I actually quite enjoyed it, trying to find all these different and playing around with Spotify and uh, more so than I actually thought I would. Because I was thinking, oh, this is going to be like work. But it's interesting, when I haven't heard classical music for a while and then I hear it, it's so refreshing particularly the music of Sibelius. Okay. So if you haven't heard classical music for a while and you put some Sibelius on, it's magical. It's like sweeping landscapes. Yes. That's how I would describe Sibelius. Beautiful. Mm. I just think, oh, yes. Have you got a favourite piece by Sibelius? Oh, all the symphonies. (laughs) Oh, all of them. (laughs) All of the symphonies. The violin concerto, (laughs) Lemminkind legends, anything by Sibelius I love. Yeah. Love. Absolutely love. The last movement of Symphony Number no. 5 <gasps> is gorgeous, oh. but it just ends so weirdly, doesn't it? Oh, I love really good endings. I, I like it. it and the thing is, the silences play a part in it as well. So if it's done really well by the skill of the conductor, mm. it can be a magical ending. Yeah. You see, because if the acoustic is dry, yeah. then it can sound a bit weird. I think this is the thing. I, I, I just, I still find it really weird. Yes. <laughs> Even though I love the rest of the piece, but then it gets to the ending and it finishes so abruptly. Yeah. And I, I just think, why is that the end? <laughs> I, can't, I can't say why. Exactly. Oh, no, it's clever. No, it's really, it's clever rather than to have a standard ending. I think it's mm-hmm. really good to have something quite original and. Yeah. Well, it's memorable, isn't it? I mean, yes. here we are talking about it. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And um, what Motown artists would you recommend? Oh, all of them. All of, I love Diana Ross. You know, Diana I Ross is great. Stevie Wonder. I just love them all. Mm-hmm. Anything Motown, I, I really, really like. Yeah. I went through a phase of every time I was commuting, listening mm-hmm. to Diana Ross. Oh, right. Yeah. 
it just became the soundtrack of me sitting on buses and trains. Yes. And it's, it's not a bad association. Because yeah. like, <laughs> quite often sitting on buses and trains can be a bit tiresome. But quite often, if I hear a particular Diana Ross song, I'll mm-hmm. think I know where I was in London when I was listening to that. Oh. Yeah, I get those funny associations of location and whatever piece I was listening oh, whatever that's, song that's I, I was really, listening to at the time. R- that's really interesting because when I'm, if I'm commuting to work, I don't have the radio on at all. You Do know, you just drive in silence? I just drive in silence when I'm going to work. <laughs> maybe it's because you know you're going to be surrounded by, by a lot of, of sound maybe, yeah, you, later. Um, some, some days if I'm travelling, if I'm travelling by train, actually if I'm travelling by train, I'm usually watching a TV programme. Mm-hmm. So it's not very often music. Yeah, well, I wonder how many people will be listening to this podcast while they're commuting. Yes. If so, hope you're having a wonderful journey. Yes. <laughs> I'll be listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> and many more. And one more question mm-hmm. um, on the topic of musical recommendations. Mm-hmm. What pieces would you recommend to someone to enlighten them on the sounds of the bassoon and the contrabassoon? That's an interesting question because when I was compiling the music for the next program of Inside Music, the producer asked me the same thing. Can you think of a bassoon piece? So I went to my colleagues. Any bassoon pieces? They all went, oh, really? Oh, man. Why is that? Is it because they all think Sorcerer's Apprentice? (laughs) (laughs) I think regarding solo bassoon music, the ear... Who, you know, a listener who's unaccustomed to listening to the bassoon, they have to work a lot harder than, say, listening to the flute or the violin. I think it's the, because of the frequencies. And in fact, when I chose a piece, if you're going to choose something with bassoon, it's best to choose it as a duo with something. So there's a lot of music for bassoon and cello. Oh, yeah. So there's a CD out with Sergio Azzolini, and they are fabulous bassoon and cello duet, and they work so well. Hmm. Some arrangements of um, duos for baritone and cello oh yeah you know okay. that that works really really well i don't do i have any bassoon cds at home i think i've only got one <laughs> <laughs> don't take your work home with you <laughs> <laughs> no. do i have any contra ones i think i've only got one because yeah. again it's having the ear to be able to hear such low low frequencies mm-hmm. Would I bring out a solo Contra CD? No. No, and I suppose it's kind of a... I think the register works quite well for it to be a bit of a canvas... Yes. ...upon which you can collaborate with other musical sounds. Absolutely. I think bassoon and cello works beautifully. Um, Some people think that apparently there's a CD with bassoon and voice, but I haven't heard it. But I think the ear would be drawn to the voice Mm -hmm. rather than the bassoon. I think the bassoon would only be in an accompanying role. But I would check out these CDs for bassoon and cello. They were some really gorgeous yeah, yeah. stuff. I, th- I imagine the registers would work quite well. Yes, I think because of the cello can playing um, chords, mm-hmm. yes, you know, things yep. like that, then yeah. it, you know, it gives it a purpose, Yeah, I think. And, and it just becomes very, very rich, yes. doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's interesting about uh, talking about registers, so the you know, ranges of mm. instruments and Quite often you think of solo stuff being quite high. As, as you mentioned before, your yes. ear is drawn to something high. But just playing in Star Wars last mm-hmm. night, there's this w- wonderful moment where, I don't know how familiar you are mm-hmm. with the films, but um, in Empire Strikes Back when they're flying through the asteroid field. Mm-hmm. And the cellos get this wonderful solo bit, but it's doubled with the trumpet. <laughs> and um, the trumpet is, is playing it, you know, in that register mm-hmm. that where everyone can hear it. But... The cello's playing in that gorgeous register. It's not it's not up high at all, but it's so lovely to play and I think it just pads everything mm. out really nicely. Mm. So there is that merit to that particular register. Yes. I think on an instrument like cello, because it sings through, and I think for bassoons playing in the top register, it's hard work, you know. <laughs> it really is. I mean, they won't admit it, but it, it, it is hard work. And a bassoon is a bass instrument at the end of the day. I want to hear low notes. Maybe yeah. I'm biased towards low notes, yeah. maybe. Um, I think it's more enjoyable being able to wallow in that. Yes. Those low notes, yes. isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah. And also, you know, being the foundation because people have to depend on me to get, you know, it's yeah. it's it's, it's satisfying. It is, and you have a lot of power as a bass instrument. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> oh yes, they have to tune to me. <laughs> and in fact, I like to remind my colleagues that I play the low notes. So some of my oboe colleagues are thinking, "Oh, I've got to play a middle C. Oh, that's a low note." Ah, is it really? And I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah. I'm saying, really? I said, I play the low notes around here. I like to remind yeah. them. Just putting everything in perspective, I think with an instrument, 
particularly with a instru wind instrument and a double reed instrument, when they are playing low notes, the danger is that the note may not speak when you want it to. Okay. Yeah. You see. And um, if they've got an important solo and notes don't speak, you know, it can make you feel really terrible, particularly if it's a crucial moment. Like second oboe players and Dvorak symphonies are a... Oh. They don't like Dvorak symphony second oboes because the, the parts are really low. I mean, they're playing low Ds and low Cs. In relation to the piano, I mean, it's kind of like the right hand of the piano. It's, mm. You know, Ds, middle C. Yeah. But to them, it's a low note. And so it's, it's being able to relax and to be able to play and to play quietly as well. Yeah. There's all these things in play yeah. and you know I feel for them a little bit but I'm, I'm, I'm the bass player I've got to play very very low notes <laughs> so it's a case of just get on with it really. <laughs> but I imagine also your wonderful heckle instrument is probably built for oh I don't have a heckle contra oh do you not okay. no right. no I've got heckle bassoons but not, not a heckle I've got Mollenhauer okay. for those in the know I've got Mollenhauer contras which are great I don't know what that is <laughs> but that sounds great <laughs> <laughs> what is the lowest note a contrabassoon can play? So my instruments play to B flat. Uh -huh. So if you think of the double bass, a low a double bass goes to a low E. Low E, yeah. yeah. So I go to a B flat. Wow. Below that, some people like Tom Addison now writing for the contra to go to low A natural. <gasps> I'm not buying any more instruments. I just put it up the octave. Even Marla, the odd occasion, will put in an A natural. I just put it up the octave. Oh, I haven't no, got no, time. No. <laughs> I really don't have time. I mean, you can put in a bit of cardboard tubing to make it longer. You can do things like that to get the low A, but I'm thinking life's too short. Yeah, life's too short. It'll probably, it will probably be felt rather than heard. Yeah. So, no, I, I don't do that. Oh, that's too low. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Thank you so much for your wonderful insight on bassoon playing, orchestral playing, and also working in radio. Where can people follow you on social media? Well, I have a website, mm -hmm. margaretcookhorn.com. I'm on Twitter, Instagram. What's your handle? Queen Contra. Mm. So you'll be able to find me around. Also through the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, through the website there as well. Lovely. <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing you more on the radio. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thanks thank for being. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> that was Margaret Cookhorn, champion contrabassoonist. Today I want to mention something that I think is important. Normally, I'm not one for plugs, as I want to emphasise the storytelling of musicians' lives in this podcast, but here goes. This is a call for professional and conservatoire classical musicians to take part in an online survey for research into classical musicians' well-being. My friend Simone Willis is a performance science researcher at Cardiff Metropolitan University, and she's conducting an online survey about the workplace stresses musicians encounter, the coping behaviours and the impact on well-being. The work's part of Simone's PhD research program and it's intended to inform recommendations for well-being policies in the classical music industry. It'll take no longer than 20 minutes to complete and you have to complete the questionnaire twice, once now and a follow-up one again in May or June 2020. And it's open to candidates around the world. You'll know I'm a big advocate for the transparency of health and well-being in the music industry. Starting up a podcast about musicians' lives is somewhat of a clue. So why not take part in the survey? It'll help Simone gain a better understanding of the challenges musicians face in the industry and hopefully in future help lay down some policies for musicians' health and well-being. A win-win situation. There's a link in the show notes, so do check that out. And if you're interested in Simone's line of work, check out my interview with her in episode eight of my old podcast, Musicians Weekend. Please ignore the terrible sound quality and creaky chairs. So this week's Music College Didn't Prepare Me comes from cellists Paddy Johnson and Alex Marshall. And I have a very lengthy Facebook message, so I'm just going to get my phone out now and read it. Okay, so it begins very bright and early on a Saturday morning. We were up to go on tour to the idyllic setting of Marbella in the south of Spain. Our point of departure was the rather less idyllic Gatwick Airport. 
As is to be expected on orchestral tours, travelling through the security checkpoint involved our instrument cases being opened, searched and swabbed. In Alex's case, the cello got swabbed too, even in the F-holes. Feeling somewhat violated, we gathered our cellos and went to the gate nice and early, assuming that the morning's hiccups were over. When we were at the gate and having our boarding passes scanned so we could board the plane, a concerned look appeared on the face of the lady behind the desk. She explained that the cellos had been booked in as Mr. Cello and Mrs. Cello, as they had been given genders. This meant there was an inaccurate picture of how many actual humans were on board. For future reference, cellos should be booked in as object. Thus, she was going to have to change the entries on the system. For the next 40 minutes, we stood awkwardly by the desk while the system crashed repeatedly and numerous mysterious sheets of paper were printed, all during a near-constant stream of walkie-talkie conversation. Eventually, after the gate had closed, we were finally allowed on! By this point, a couple of our colleagues had joined us at the desk of Limbo, as they had a trombone and a barry sax, also with genders at the point of booking, and so they were in the same predicament as us. However, as time was tight by the time our cellos had been successfully changed to gender neutral, the trombone and sax were eventually just waved through with entries unchanged. By this point, it had also emerged that our conductor had accidentally left his violin at security. How do you do that? Knowing that there was a very real risk of the plane leaving without him, we did our level best to discreetly stall the ground staff as he sprinted nearly the entire length of the terminal and back again, with Paddy even offering lengthy and profuse thanks to the EasyJet lady who had humoured us all of this time instead of ejecting us from the flight. Eventually, as we ambled slowly towards the plane bus, our conductor reappeared, chest heaving, sweat dripping and with violin in hand. Finally, we could board the plane and fly to our sunny Spanish paradise. Or so we thought. And once we were sat down and buckled in, it emerged that the Costa del Sol was experiencing a rare patch of heavy fog and we couldn't take off until it had been cleared, the estimate being in about two hours' time. So we waited until finally we were cleared to take off. However, by this time, it had also emerged that the moving stairs that the passengers climbed to enter the plane had left an almighty scratch on the side of the airplane. Thus, we had to wait for an additional half hour while an engineer assessed the damage. But then, finally, we were able to fly. Paddy also says later on that literally none of that stuff happened on the way home. And they flew just fine with Mr. and Mrs. Cello. Thanks, Alex and Patty, for your story. What a mission. Like I said earlier, playing music is the easy bit. Getting to the gig is the hard part. If you've experienced something that Music College didn't prepare you for, then do get in touch. Email me at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Send me a message on social media or just tell me if you happen to run into me. I mean, it happens. You think London's a big place, but then you randomly run into people you know. Well, I mean, I suppose the music world's pretty small. That's it for today. Special thanks to Roz Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Great big contrabassoon signs. Thanks to Margaret Cookhorn for finding the time to have a chat with me and making sure I didn't get lost on my way to the station later. And, of course, thank you for listening. We're 10 episodes old now. It's been a great journey, and I've enjoyed producing this podcast so much. It's been absolutely lovely hearing what you think about the pod, like, oh yes, I had that experience too, or oh, I wish someone had told me that. And quite frankly, if I can find something that's relatable or make you feel less alone or occasionally crack up from time to time, then I'm happy. Thank you. Get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com. Like and follow the pod on Facebook and Instagram at As It Comes Pod. Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and keep spreading the word. Chat to you soon. Bye. This meant that there was an an this meant that there was an inaccurate picture. This meant that there was an inaccurate... Jesus, why can't I say that?